Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermon text this morning is taken from Acts chapter 9. It's a rather long reading, so you may be seated. I'm reading the first 31 verses of Acts chapter 9. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight. And inquired the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him, that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to the saints of Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon thy name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And I will show him how much he, he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he arose and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing, hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not the man in, who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called upon this name, and who came here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. And their plot became known to Saul. And they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through the opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples and they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and they had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, and they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. 
So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and continued to increase. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the spirit that you've promised to us. We pray that your spirit would guide us as we consider this portion of your word today. Help us to love you with our whole hearts, our whole souls, and help us to worship you and acknowledge your great mercy and power, even to those who hate and despise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Old Testament is divided into three large sections. There's the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. Once the land is conquered and Israel settles in the land, the Lord chooses a king, and the Davidic kings take over, and we have a long section of the Old Testament that's dealing with the history of the kings. After the kings have fallen into sin and idolatry, after the Lord has been patient for generations, he finally scatters them into, among the nations, sends them into exile, and at that point we have a group of prophetic books, prophetic books that are clustered around the time just before the exile, during the exile, and after the exile. As we move from the Pentateuch to the history of the kings to the prophets, we're also moving through a series of offices or leaders. In the Pentateuch, the chief head of Israel is the high priest, Aaron, and his descendants. During the time of the kings, of course, the kings are the leaders of Israel and the representatives of Israel before the Lord. But then when the kingdom ends, prophets take over. So we're moving from priest to king to prophet. And as we move through that cycle, we're also moving from one zone of concern, one focal point, one focal place to another. In the Pentateuch, the, the focal place is the sanctuary, the tabernacle, where Aaron and his sons preside and offer sacrificial worship. Once Israel's conquered the land and they have kings, the kings rule the land. They build temples, they take care of temples, but they're ruling the entire land. So we move the sanctuary to the land, and then Israel is scattered out into the, among the nations out to the world. We move from priest to king to prophet. We move from sanctuary to land to world. And the book of Acts replicates and recapitulates that same movement. We have basically three sections to the book of Acts that corresponds to those three large sections of the Old Testament. The opening events of the book of Acts, the day of Pentecost, the early ministry of Peter and John, the conflicts that they have with the priests in Jerusalem, those are all taking place in Jerusalem. Their enemies are the chief priests and the leaders of the temple. And all of the debates are about what's happening in the temple. Peter and John heal a lame man just at the temple gates. And that becomes the cause celeb that everyone is concerned about, everyone's debating. That's why the chief priests bring Peter and John in before the Sanhedrin, because they've healed this man, and their message is spreading throughout Jerusalem, and it needs to stop. It's the temple authorities debating with the apostles about what's happened in the temple, and opposing the apostles, because the movement that the apostles lead is becoming a kind of alternative temple. We're in Jerusalem, the enemies are the priests, we're in the zone of concern that you find in the Pentateuch. But then after the death of Stephen, after Stephen is stoned to death, the disciples scatter from Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem is left behind for a large part of the book of Acts. Occasionally people go back to it, but the action really moves elsewhere and specifically moves out to Judea and to Samaria and to the surrounding areas around Jerusalem. It moves out to the land. And the enemies of the apostles and the disciples are no longer the chief priests primarily. They don't have direct contact with those chief priests because they're outside of Jerusalem. Instead, the city officials of the various cities where they, where they uh, preach the gospel. And King Herod try to, uh, tries to suppress the, the, uh, the gospel and tries to arrest the spread and increase of the church. You move from Jerusalem out to Judea and Samaria. You move from uh, a, a conflicts with priests to conflict with city leaders and with kings. And then beginning about the middle of the book of Acts, Paul begins his missionary journeys. And the rest of Acts, of course, is concerned with Paul going out to the Gentiles, to the Greco-Roman world, preaching the gospel in Gentile cities of Asia Minor, Gentile cities in Greece and Macedonia, eventually making his way to the capital of the Gentile world in Rome. We move, move from Jerusalem to the land surrounding Jerusalem to the wider world, just as the Old Testament moves from the sanctuary to the land and to the world. And Acts chapter 8 is the turning point, the first transition that we have from the, a section of Acts into the second section of Acts, from the temple section of Acts and the Jerusalem section of Acts to the section that's dealing with the wider uh, land that surrounds Jerusalem. And one of the big clues that we're moving away from uh, concerned with the temple and concerned with the priests into concerned with the land and kings is a name. At the end of chapter 7 of Acts, we have the name Saul introduced for the first time. Saul, of course, first appears at the stoning of Stephen. He's among those who are stoning Stephen. He doesn't actually stone Stephen himself, but he's taking care of the cloaks of those who are stoning Stephen, the first martyr, to death. And his name is a clue that we're moving into a different part of the book of Acts. Because he's not the first Saul in the Bible. We all know who the first Saul was. The first Saul was the first king. Before there was a Davidic king, before there was a David, there was a king Saul. And when Saul's name reappears in the book of Acts, we know we're making a transition into a royal phase of the book of Acts. And this second Saul... Saul of Tarsus, picks up where the first Saul left off. Saul was selected to be king in order to protect Israel from their enemies, and he did fight a few enemies. He fought, kind of unsuccessfully fought against the Philistines. He defeated the Ammonites. But he spends most of his reign chasing David around the land and trying to kill David and trying to stop David from inheriting the kingdom that belongs to Saul, trying to stop David from taking over his dynasty after he's gone, taking over the land. The second Saul is doing the same thing. The second Saul is trying to suppress the movement and the reign of a new David, of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Initially, he's just the guy taking care of the cloaks. And then he is in hearty agreement, we've, we hear, we read. He's in hearty agreement with those who put Stephen to death. And then he's ravaging the church in Jerusalem. And when he starts ravaging the church in Jerusalem, some of the disciples slip away. And he can't ravage them anymore in Jerusalem. So he has to get letters from the chief priests to chase them down in Damascus and other cities. He's doing exactly what the first Saul did, trying to suppress the kingdom 
of a new David. The second Saul's life, though, is not the same as the first Saul. And the reason why his life doesn't turn out as the first Saul's life turned out is because of what happens here in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. David once called to Saul and confronted Saul. Outside a cave, he confronted Saul with his sin. He said, why are you, why are you persecuting me? Why are you chasing me around the land? I'm doing nothing but good for you. I'm fighting your enemies. And Saul momentarily, King Saul momentarily had remorse for what he had been doing to David. You are more righteous than I, he said to David. But then almost immediately, Saul is back to chasing David around, trying to kill David, taking every opportunity he can, deploying some of his troops to chase David, troops that are supposed to be there to fight against Philistines. He's sending them off to fight against David. But this Saul, the second Saul, is confronted by a greater David. And he is not just remorseful for a moment, but he radically changes, radically converts. He is undone. He's shattered. The old Saul dies on the road to Damascus so that the new David can raise up a Paul. Saul comes breathing murder and threats against the disciples. But by the end of the passage, he's received the breath of the Spirit. And in the Greek, the word breathing at the beginning of chapter 9 and the word for spirit that, uh, that, that Saul receives, it's the same root. He starts out with murderous breath. He ends up with the Spirit of God, the breath of God living in him. He begins uh, on the road to Damascus. He's cast down and he goes into the dust. He goes into the dust of death. We have a series of negatives. He cannot see. He does not eat. He does not drink. He becomes like a dead man when Jesus confronts him, when this new David confronts him on the road. But then by the end of the passage, he's raised up. He's given new sight. He's given a place at a new table. He eats and drinks with Ananias in the house of Judas. The old Saul is undone and shattered so that a new Saul can take his place. Well, this is not just a conversion narrative. This is not just about Saul becoming a new man. This is also a commissioning story. Saul's conversion, Saul's commissioning, is like the commissioning of other leaders and prophets in the Old Testament. There's a bright light shining brighter than the sun at noonday. It's in the middle of the day, and yet this, this light that appears to, to Saul outshines the light of the sun. And out of that light, he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Other prophets also heard a voice coming from a bright light. Moses, Moses, Yahweh says from the burning bush and tells Moses to go back to Egypt and lead the people out of Egypt. When Isaiah is in the temple, he sees the Lord exalted on his throne. The glory of the Lord fills the temple. The brilliant, radiant glory of the Lord. And in that light, he hears the voice of the Lord calling him and commissioning him to be a prophet. Ezekiel is in exile by the river Kibar. And the glory of the Lord appears to him, the glory that's abandoned the Jerusalem temple and is now gone into exile along with his people. That glory appears to Ezekiel at the river Kibar. And out of that glory, the Lord speaks to him and calls him to be a prophet. 
Saul receives the same kind of commission out of the bright light, out of the glory of the Lord that appears to him on the road to Damascus. The voice calls him not just to become a new man, but calls him to become a missionary. No longer longer pursuing an anti-gospel mission, which is what he's been doing. He's been trying to suppress the gospel, but now he's turned into a herald of the gospel. And because he's commissioned by Jesus Christ, his life becomes a replica and a recapitulation of the life of Jesus. That happens to all of the leaders of the church in the book of Acts. All of their lives are Jesus-shaped lives. You can trace out the story of Peter, particularly if you look at uh, Acts chapter 12, what happens to Peter in Acts chapter 12. Peter's arrested. Peter's put into prison. An angel comes to him and releases him from the prison. He goes to the house where the disciples are praying. He appears. A woman sees him but doesn't, isn't sure that it's him. She thinks it's a ghost perhaps. And then he rejoins the disciples that are inside the house. That, and then Peter disappears, goes off somewhere else. He appears a couple of times more in Acts, but basically the, uh, the, the ministry of Peter is done. That's, that's a death and resurrection and a departure Peter's life has been conformed to the life of Jesus. Stephen's life is conformed to the life of Jesus. Like Jesus, Stephen debates with the Jews in the synagogues. Like, Stephen, like Jesus, Stephen overcomes all opposition. Nobody can refute him. He's so full of the Spirit that nobody has an answer for him. Like Jesus, he provokes murderous rage from his enemies. And like Jesus, he's put to death. And his last words are the words of Jesus. Receive my Spirit. Father, forgive them. Stephen and Peter and now Saul are commissioned not just to speak about Jesus, but to embody the life of Jesus in their own lives. And it starts happening immediately. Saul is called by Jesus, and the first thing that happens to Saul when he gets to Damascus, after he gets his sight back, he stays in Damascus uh, 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 spending time, and he's immediately in the synagogues, saying Jesus is the Son of God. And everyone's amazed. They can't refute him. They can't stop him. They can't intimidate him. They say, the only thing we can do is kill him. And then he escapes and goes to Jerusalem. And the same thing happens again. But in Jerusalem, he debates with the Hellenistic Jews, who are the very same enemies that Stephen debated with and Stephen had conflicts with. Saul who was there watching Stephen put to death, has become another Stephen. And Stephen was another Christ. That's what it means for an apostle to be commissioned. Not just a spokesman of Jesus, but his life is conformed to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The dying of Jesus in the apostles, so that the life of Jesus is communicated to the church. You see this new David... Jesus, the son of David, has power greater than the first David. David could confront Saul and bring him to a momentary remorse. David could survive. He could hide from Saul. He could escape Saul. And eventually, the Lord took Saul out of the way and David inherited the kingdom. What David never did was turn Saul into an ally. He never turned Saul into somebody who was a herald of the Davidic kingdom. But that's what this David does. This is the power of the new covenant. This is the power of the new David. He confronts a Saul 
who wants to wipe out the new David and wipe out the people of the new David. He confronts Saul and turns him into a herald of the Davidic kingdom. He confronts Saul and turns him into a Jonathan. Remember Jonathan, Saul's son. Jonathan, Saul's son, who stands to inherit the kingdom of his father, but instead devotes himself to David. He renounces his own inheritance because he knows David is the anointed king. And even strips himself of his armor and of his princely robes, and he gives them to David. That's what David does to this Saul. This enemy, this murderer, this persecutor is turned into a herald of the kingdom. The persecutor is turned into a persecuted disciple. This predator is turned into prey. The new David doesn't just defeat his enemies. He does defeat his enemies. But he, turns, he defeats his enemies by turning them into allies and friends and apostles. The story of Saul is interrupted in verse 10 by what looks like a digression. We change scenes. And we're no longer on the Damascus road. Suddenly we're inside the city of Damascus in the house of a man named Ananias. We haven't met Ananias before. We met a different Ananias earlier in the book of Acts. You might remember that Ananias. Last time we saw him, he was a corpse. He was dead at the apostles' feet and there were young men carrying him out because he lied to the Holy Spirit. Now another Ananias appears here in Damascus. And the Lord appears to him and sends Ananias back, uh, uh, sends Ananias to the house of Judas where Saul is staying. And Luke spends about 10 verses talking about Ananias, laying out the scene with Ananias, the Lord appearing to him and, and commanding him to go and meet with Saul. Why so much space? Why does Luke digress? It's not just a digression that is odd, but it's the fact that Ananias' experience here replicates and parallels the experience of Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul's on the road to Damascus, and Jesus appears and calls him by name. Ananias is in, ha in his house in Damascus, and Jesus appears and calls him by name. Paul sees a vision on the road to Damascus. Ananias sees a vision in the city of Damascus. Jesus dialogues with Saul on the road to Damascus. Ananias has a dialogue with Jesus in, a, in the city of Damascus. One, point by point, Ananias is repeating what happened to Saul on the road. Why, why is this so intricately entwined and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, connected to the story of Saul? Why is this even here? One reason is because what the Lord tells Ananias is uh, he lays out things and tells things to Ananias that he doesn't tell directly to Saul. We learn about Ananias's, uh, sorry, about Saul's future. We learn about Saul's mission from what the Lord tells Ananias. The Lord doesn't tell Saul directly that he's a chosen instrument. He tells that to Ananias, and presumably Ananias passes that on. The Lord doesn't tell Saul directly that he's going to bear the name of Jesus before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. He tells that to Ananias, and Ananias is going to pass it on. He doesn't tell Saul directly, I will show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. He tells that to Ananias, and Ananias passes it on. 
Even though Saul has confronted Jesus and seen him on the road to Damascus, even though he's had this prophetic experience, this prophetic commissioning, it's still through a disciple, a human being, that he receives information about what his future holds. He receives it through a member of the church. Even the great Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, receives his instructions through another servant of the Lord. But I think there's another reason why Luke spends so much space in this story on Ananias. What's going on with Ananias is as much a conversion as what happens to Saul. Notice Ananias' initial response. Ananias, behold, here I am. Arise and go to a street called Straight. Inquire in the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. And Ananias immediately says, I know this guy. He's got a reputation. I know what he's done to the saints in Jerusalem. I know what he's come here to do. And you want me to go and meet him. You're sending me to the lion's den. You're sending me to the murderer, the one who's breathing out threats against the saints. It's a natural response, right? If you had heard that some great enemy of the church wanted to see you, because he had a vision of Jesus, you'd be a little skeptical. But if Ananias doesn't go, and if Ananias doesn't receive Saul, and later if the apostles don't receive Saul, then the conversion of Saul really doesn't have the impact it's supposed to have. The conversion of Saul has to be followed by the conversion of Ananias, and in fact the conversion of the whole church. The church has to be converted so that it begins to see this Saul, which it is treated as an enemy, this Saul, the, the man they've been afraid of, they've been cowering before, they've been fleeing from, they have to begin to see him as an ally and as a fellow minister. The turning point, the climax of the story, in a sense, is what happens with Ananias and Saul in the house of Judas. Ananias lays hands on him, and Saul receives his sight. Ananias baptizes him, and they share a meal together in the house of Judas. And Ananias greets Saul as brother. Brother Saul. Not Saul the murderer. Not Saul the enemy. Saul the brother. What Luke is showing us is that the power of the, the, power of the new David... The power of the new David overcomes enemies and turns them into friends. The power of the new David also changes the church. So the church receives former enemies as allies and friends and brothers. The church is a miracle of reconciliation. Not only in converting enemies into friends, but also converting communities of believers into a hospitable welcoming community for those former enemies. The Lord continues to do that. This is not just a first century phenomenon. We read missionary accounts about what happens on the mission field and how persecutors are... I found out what's wrong with my microphone if I step back here. That's I need to stay close to, the, uh, close to the pulpit. If you read missionary accounts of what happens to persecutors of the church... And how persecutors of the church are confronted by the patience and the faithfulness of suffering Christians and by the witness of suffering Christians. Those persecutors 
are on occasion converted. And the church has to welcome them. And the church does welcome them. The church replicating the welcome of Jesus and extending the hospitality of Jesus, who receives enemies as friends and turns them into his missionaries and his apostles. The church at the end of this passage is increasing. The church is at peace. The church that's under threat from Saul at the beginning of chapter 9 by verse 31 is now enjoying peace, being built up, going on in fear of the Lord, and continues to increase. What's interesting, though, is that it was increasing before Saul converted. It was increasing when it was in Jerusalem. The apostles were under threat from the high priest. When the apostles were being hauled in before the Sanhedrin, the church increased. Once Paul started on his program of elimination, once Saul began to uh, combat and fight against the new David, the church increased. In fact, you have uh, Luke introduces Saul, and then he has a chapter where he talks about the mission of Philip, who goes to Samaria, and the city of Samaria converts. And he meets an Ethiopian eunuch, and the Ethiopian eunuch is baptized and then goes off back to Ethiopia, taking the gospel of the kingdom to Ethiopia. That's all under the shadow of Saul's persecution. Saul's breathing out threats and violence. He's murdering people. He's binding them. He's taking them before the high priest. The church increases. The church is at peace. The church increases. Persecuted, not persecuted. Viciously persecuted, mildly persecuted. It doesn't matter. The church increases. And the church increases in part by folding its former enemies into the family of God and turning them into brothers. This is a crucial moment in the history of the early church. But it's also a crucial moment in the history of the world. The conversion of Saul and the conversion of Ananias, the reconciliation of Saul to the new David, and to the people of the new David. That is the moment at which God begins the mission to the Gentiles. Because that Saul, of course, is going to become the chief apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus converts one enemy. Jesus converts one Pharisee. He subdues one Pharisee. And in subduing that one Pharisee, he begins to subdue the world. The light that's shining on the Damascus Road is the light of Jesus shining to change Saul into a new man so that he becomes a bearer of the light. Everyone who comes into the light is light. He becomes a bearer of the light of Jesus. But that light on the Damascus Road is also the light of the new creation, of a new world, a new day dawning, not only for Israel but for the Gentiles. As Jesus, the new David, converts this new Saul into Paul, this, this enemy and this murderer into, herald of the, into a herald of the kingdom of David. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the new David, exalted to your right hand as King and Lord. We thank you that he is still at work to turn his enemies away from their enmity and to welcome them as friends.
Father, we pray that you would confront all those who hate your church, those who hate your church and who hate Jesus Christ in our own country, in our own cities, those who hate Jesus throughout the world. We pray that you would confront them as you confronted Saul and that you would turn them from their enmity and welcome them among us as your children and as our brothers. We thank you for the miracle of reconciliation that we are, the miracle of reconciliation that is an ongoing reality in the church that we are part of, that we're experiencing. We pray that that would continue until the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We pray this for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.